Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, Emma Whitfield here, account manager at the Webby Awards. I just wanted to let you in on a little secret. The final entry deadline for the 23rd Annual Webby Awards is coming up December 14th. This year, we've added a ton of new categories to honor your work across voice, podcasts, games, social content series and campaigns, branded entertainment, and more. Don't miss your chance to enter. Head on over to webbyawards.com and submit your work before the deadline on Friday, December 14th. Let's get started. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. No, you are fake news. Still waiting for that apology. Find new doors, open them. Local data, local stories, our communities matter. Hey, and welcome back. If ever there was a time to want to talk to really smart people about using the internet to improve upon journalism, it's now. So I was thrilled to talk with Megan Lucero, director of the Bureau Local, a network of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism that uses technology and accessible, transparent data sets to connect local reporters collaborating on stories across the United Kingdom. The Bureau Local's groundbreaking work was celebrated at the Levees in London just this past November, where Megan Lucero took the stage to accept the Levy Be Greater with Data Award. She joins me for today's episode of the Webby Podcast to discuss the Bureau Local's work, starting with their beginnings and what exactly we mean by data journalism. So prior to working at the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, which is a, the kind of host organization, I was the data editor for the Times and the Sunday Times in London, and I was one of the first data journalist they hired, the first data editor they hired. So, you know, at the, when I was starting out, data was this kind of, oh, that's an important thing somewhere over there. Maybe we should do something about it. And I had the opportunity to kind of really craft what that meant for the future of journalism. And so we embedded it into the investigative process of the Times and the Sunday Times. Um, but I was really intrigued in making it more accessible to other people. So I knew that it was su super privileged to be able to do that in a Times newsroom. But I just thought, saw the huge sort of deficit that was happening at a local level in the UK and just thought, how can we, how can we make data journalism more accessible to people around the country? Well, tell me a little bit before we get into the Bureau Local, tell me a little bit about what that evolution looked like at the Times, mm. because those are sort of the earlier days of yeah. people starting to think about data journalism and data visualizations and there's a lot of energy around it. There still is, but there was a lot of energy around that. Yeah, well, it's so it's, it's kind of a sexy, exciting term, isn't it? Everyone's mm -hmm. talking about is this the new thing? But the truth is, data journalism is simply journalism. It's you know, it's I think it's quite a repetitive term at this stage. Um, and when we first started out, everyone knew data was this big important thing, but didn't really know what to do with it. And at the time, there was like the Guardian Data blog, and there was a lot of cool, interesting visualization that was coming out of it. But when we were sitting at the Times, we thought, well 
what what is new that we can bring to it. And you look at the archives of the times and they had statisticians and they had really impressive visualizations happening in print. So we knew that data visualization wasn't new and we knew that sort of analytical breaking down of the complex to the sim simplified version isn't new. So we were like, what is new? Um, what can we make that's new to that? And it was really just the idea of computational methods. So the idea that computers and digitized information is now being used to analyze in a completely do new way through technology. So uh, we decided to think, okay, what are the strengths? The time was great. The Times was great at um, doing great deep analysis. We had a statistician on our team, which most newsrooms didn't have, and we had programmers and journalists. We knew we weren't going to be kind of breaking news type of outlet, and we knew we weren't going to be leaders in kind of breaking kind of visualization. So what could we do? Um, the idea was that we would do this sort of computational method to our investigations, the idea that there is data being processed every minute. As we speak, our phones and computers and around us are producing more digitized records than a human can possibly go through. So the idea was just that, you know what, a human can't compete with a computer, like humans can't compete with robots. And so the future of journalism can't be, you know, the human sitting there trying to figure out how are, how is all this information, what are the stories behind it? So it was the idea was like, we need to equip our newsroom to use those same methods that produce that data to analyze and scrutinize it. That's really important as we start to enter, you know, areas in which AI and machine learning are kind of informing decision-making about the public space, um, as it is as much just about how this is where records are held. And we just sort of saw it as, you know, data is a not just a digitized record, it's an account of people's lives. And I think we just, it's important for me, at least for us never to forget that, you know, that in the excitement of data, it's important to remember that at the end of the day, to me, the data is always the what of the story, but it's not the why. And the journalists will always be crucial in using that as a sort of vehicle, as a weapon to getting to what is this, what is really driving that high statistic or, you know, that really, um, that really high figure about um, crime rates or, or health or whatever it might be. So really sort of bringing what I guess what people call now like data science on some level, kind yeah. of bringing that more to the news fold. Yeah, just thinking about what is the future space that we're all operating in our society. I think every sector needs to think about that, not just journalism. And every sector is trying to. But especially if journalists are trying to scrutinize institutions, but if we can't even scrutinize the, the institutions that are producing these high statistical level, like I said, machine learning, AI, or even just vast databases on records of employees or contracts or, or wealth, um, then how can we really get to the stories of our age? Yeah. And so that was, I mean, for the most part, that was a national paper, right? That mm -hmm. was covering national news. And yeah. now at Bureau Local, you've moved into looking at specifically hyper-local and bringing this expertise to like a, to a much more local media environment. Tell, yeah. So tell us a bit about that. How did it start? And Well, like I said, I was just really intrigued at it. You know, when I was working at the national paper, you sort of classic example when you're getting a big story is you sort of, you pull the data from the sources around the country. Let's say it's police forces or councils and you compile all the data and you sum it all up and you get that big fat number at the bottom. You throw that on the front page. And I was always left with, we just would dump the data and move on. And I was just always left with this feeling of, what happens to all of that? Um, it's hugely inefficient, first of all, for us to just do that for one national outlet and to not make that available or accessible. And a lot of newsrooms were beginning to make that available and accessible to people. But still, the big thing that we've been doing at the Bureau Local is that while there's open data and while it might be available, true accessibility is very difficult. That's an area that I think we need to move into, which is, you know, even if it's in a giant SQL database, so a kind of giant kind of database that only can be queried through code. That's not accessible to your average person on the street, that someone wants to understand how to scrutinize their council or their police force. 
or to find out statistics in their area, that is just as inaccessible as not producing the data at all for them because they don't have that knowledge of that skill set. And so this was really intriguing to me about how do we make information actually truly accessible to people um, from all backgrounds and all levels. Um, and the Bureau Local also came from the idea that, you know, this same element that technology needs, that journalism needs technology and technology needs journalism, um, we started to open up our journalism to just being more collaborative. The idea, recognizing we can't do it alone. And the moment we did that, it transformed the way that the project worked. So our idea was that through collaboration, so through local people on the ground all working together, we can hold power to account. So there had been huge cuts to, you know, to local papers locally, um, to to just access to information. And so we were both trying to say one solution to this space could be, what if we made information more accessible? So what if we just tried to t- take this data journalism concept and actually open it up and, and make it understandable, easy to get, easy to find out? But what if we did that and collaborated with people? So it got everybody on board at the same time on the same project. We all dig together and we all break together. And so you kind of have this reverberation of a story that's not just at a national level, but it's also local. So how, do, like, so how does it work? You know, like how, if do you, how, how do you decide a story that's going to be taken on? Is it some local journalist that has a story and they need help with it? Is it the Bureau Local has an idea that there's... And I, there's a story out there. If only there was more information from local journalists. How does it start? Yeah, it starts in lots of different ways. Um, I mean, one example is sort of there. We knew that um, there was a local story about. Actually, it became a national story about how Sunderland was one of the last um, cities that would have would be shutting down their domestic violence refuge provision. So a sort of shelter that women can go to and flee. And it was this story because they were, they were saying, "How is it that this large city?" When it'll, can't have this anymore. And the question began within our community of saying, well, this surely isn't just happening in Sunderland. How can we look at that on a more widespread level? So we began collecting data about um, how much money was being cut to these areas, how many we were um, asking local people to help us collect um, information about how many women and children were turned away from each of these refuges. Um, So we were both collecting vast amounts of data and analyzing kind of larger over time, how much money is being reduced to these spaces, what's actually happening, how many are shutting down. But then equally, actually, the refugees themselves being able to tell us and collect that information is how many women are being turned away. Um, so it kind of work, it works in those two parts. Um, so but it's the, not just journalists that exactly. are participating. So that's the different thing about the Bureau Local. And I kind of alluded to this earlier that as soon as we opened ourselves up to saying, hey, the tech world, come help us. The moment we did that with our with journalism, we just it, it opened us up to a huge different space. So the Bureau Local is a network of people who want to hold power to account. And that is predominantly journalists, a good, you know, maybe a good third actually of our of our, of our network is journalists, a good chunk are technologists because we did this really big outreach um, when we first started. But it, a huge element are teachers, lawyers, moms, um, people just across the country who care. And all of them kind of bring what they can to it so not these people aren't just trying to set out to be journalists they sort of say um you know hey just a member of the public will say hey i got these leaflet through my door about cut to a local service that could be of use to a journalist or a reporter who didn't get that leaflet through their door um lawyers are kind of bringing their knowledge or expertise we have designers who are kind of helping visualize information there's just this kind of huge range of people saying how can I contribute? How can I participate in an act of journalism is the way we kind of describe it. Um, it's not that there's an army of citizen journalists, but people saying, if we're going to hold these bodies to account, we have to bind together, especially because there's not 
scrutiny of local spaces there used to be and there's not local news outlets like there used to be. Do you find that new members of the community are coming in because of specific issues they care about and then get interested in the overall process and stay around? Like, is that the is that the thing that brings people to you? Is they're interested in this or that that you're focusing on? Or? Yeah, I mean, like anyone who probably does any kind of community organizing, you'll know that people come and participate in different so there's people who really care about their area. They care about Manchester. And no matter what issue they care, they want to help us in Manchester. There's people who really care about topics. So they cared about domestic violence, um, but maybe they didn't want to to look into our um, investigation on sort of farming um, or farming space and, and people who worked in the farming space either way. So it's what's interesting is looking at the intersection of people's skills, people's interests, and people's locations. And, and people participate in different ways. And that's just as we know how it is in everyday life as well. Um, we're learning how to make, um, really utilize all of that, but it's um, it's a really interesting experiment. So you talked about the shelters being closed as a story. Can, mm. Like, walk us through how that started and how it developed and what it ended up being. Yeah, I mean, it was just this. It, I mean, it's been we've been working on that story and still doing outputs from it now a year later. So it's like I said, it started out with this one idea of wow, the last shelter, there is no longer going to be a domestic violence shelter in Sunderland. Now, since the reporting, actually, they've kept it open. But at the time, it was an announcement that they were about to shut it. And that, again, sparked this conversation with several people. We set out and said, who cares about this? So we have a kind of community of following of people. Um, right now, there's, like I said, 800 members of, of this beer local community. And we sort of set out saying, you know, who's interested in, in, in this issue? Who wants to find out with us if this is the case around the country. Is this a unique case in Sunderland? And so people, um, we just had about probably 20, 25 people initially just said, I care about this. I'm going to stick with you with it. Let's find out. So unfortunately, a lot of the the data around this was not publicly available. So we had to do freedom of information requests to get down information about, um, like I said, cuts, budget cuts to this over time. Um, we got local partners on board. So we sort of identified, okay, where do we have that information about where cuts were happening? Where was that information going to be? And where local papers were interested in participating with us? Um, we had, you know, NGOs like Women's Aid or Solace or um, these these organizations who help people on the ground saying, you know, we have some experience or knowledge. We have some, you know, either statistics or information. Um, as I mentioned, we kind of worked with statisticians, helped us create a nice little survey that we could take out to everyone and find out how many women and children had fleed from that. So we're collecting it in different ways. But most importantly, obviously, the journalism was happening. So once the data is all kind of locked down, um, what we do is with any investigation is we do these reporting recipes. So I mentioned accessibility is a really important part of what we do. So we take the data and we don't just do this massive dump. We try to simplify it to what do people need to know and how do they need to look at it? We write these recipes that say if you want to find out if a shelter has been um, shut down or if there's been funding cuts to, to domestic violence in your area, here's how you can join us. And it kind of walks you through how to investigate it with us. We open that out to the community. Everyone starts to dig in. Um, and again, it's not just about reporting on the statistics. Sure. We found that there were 24% cuts Um over the past several years to domestic violence funding. Uh, we found that in a six-month period alone that minimally 1,000 women and children had been turned away from these refugees because there weren't beds for them to come to flee to. So this had come from that. Um, and then locally, people are just digging, interrogating, and really trying to get underneath it. What does that mean in my area? Um, and really interestingly, along the way in this sort of journey, um, we met... Uh, Unfortunately, while we were digging into this, there was a um, a refuge in Kensington, Chelsea, and the roof had collapsed on it. The five women in this had written a sort of call for help to tell their stories and to flee the space. And 
our reporter at the time went down and met them. And when we finally produced the story, we ran this um, really powerful piece about it, followed these five women over time and what happened when the roof collapsed on them and what and where did they go next. But one of the women was just this extremely powerful storyteller. And she really wanted to tell her own story and wanted to tell it in her own words. So she wrote a firsthand account for us as well. Um, but she also is a um, this great kind of comedian storyteller and wanted to write a scratch performance of a stand-up comedy piece on her experience. Um, and we fundraised the money to be able to allow for that to be part of our journalism. Um, there's a huge part about saying, what does the data tell us? And there's a huge part about our project, which is about rebuilding a trust of community storytelling. Mm. Um, that I think there's been a huge separation from you know, the issues to actual local people. I think Brexit is a really good example of how we did, We should have heard that. We should have been close yeah. enough to our communities. We should have been reporting deeply and understanding of that. Um, so we saw this huge opportunity to say, you know what, this is their experience. This is her experience. Let her tell it in her own words. Um, so she wrote this hilarious, powerful, one-woman comedy show. Um, and we helped her develop that. And we took it on tour around the country wow. to places where our local reporters had dug into the issue. The first half of the show is her incredible performance, which it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but it's both hilarious and heart-wrenching and powerful at the same time. And in the second half, we had a kind of little open discussion with a local reporter, um, Cash, who's our writer and performer, um, and then sort of local, whether they are a refuge manager or someone who's experienced this or who um, works in this space and could tell more about it. So in the second half of the show, the audience gets to hear about what about that area? So we took it to Norwich and Lancaster, um, places all around the country. And, and they were able to then say, here's what the picture is here in Norwich. You know, you're hearing her account, but also these are the cuts. These are the beds. These are the shelters that are no longer here or what is here left. Um, and we just saw this as an incredible way to to tell a story in a completely new way. People might not read a 2000 word article about yeah. domestic violence, but they'll show up to a comedy show right. and learn about their community. So. Um, the project, that's the kind of full iteration of what yeah. that is. And, and as you can see, it's much more than data. Yeah, it's, much it's, an or, more. it's a sort of organic way. Of, it's an organic expression of the story mm. and something that's sort of entertaining and interesting. Not that the 2,000-word article isn't interesting also, mm. but, uh, you know, people like to hear these things in different ways sometimes, right? Exactly. And I think, you know, as much as I know that we're kind of, you know, the um, we're being recognized for our kind of innovation in the data space and trying to do that. Actually, at the end of the day, it's 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 just one piece. You know, it's the data is the means for us to getting that story. The data actually provides evidence. It gives us it's a hugely powerful tool that local reporters, local people can take to the people who are responsible. And they're saying and they can say they can actually have that. This is how many men, women and children are turned away from a space, a safe space for them. Or these are the funding cuts. Like, why is there no more money for this space um, when there's a rise in domestic violence in their area, for instance? So I think um, it's it, the data element that we're able to provide is, like I said, the means to an end. Yeah. And ultimately, it's really important to us that the end is is ultimately about really powerful, true storytelling that deeply connects with communities and actually allows people to be informed in ways that I think we really need right now. You have all these different people working on this now. How do you, I mean, do you embargo it until like one day it's like everybody goes out at once or is it just you have dozens of reporters and they're all just doing their own stuff and it's just sort of percolating in different papers and different outlets or how do you manage that? Yeah, so it, it is a little bit about, I mean, the one um, I can give is sort of slightly different example, which is like a really easy way to kind of iterate it. So we've also done a, a big investigation into homeless deaths. Um, similar thing, there's a, you know, a situation where a man is 
um, has been sitting on the steps of Parliament for a long time. Everyone passes by and he dies there on the steps. And again, our reporter sort of asked the question, um, you know, how could this happen? And how many people die homeless? And how many people are homeless? And you start to kind of try to find out where the data is on that. And turns out no one collects it. There is no official statistic on how many people die. So we set out to say, this is something our community can do. Now, this is sort of reverse to the story I just told you earlier, which is we didn't set out with a data set. We set out to build one um, because without the evidence, you can't, you don't have the evidence right. to change it or to argue it. So, so we set out to do that. And so again, very similar. We put the call out. We worked with local people, organization, activist groups, but local reporters and people around the country to start to collect do you know of someone who's died in the past year? And we just tried to do for the past winter and the past year. So we're pulling all this information in. And again, as, as you just said, in a kind of, in a traditional journalism sense, you say, here's a story, here's when we're going to break it. And you tend to only thinking about your outlet. The interesting thing about working for a nonprofit like the, the Bureau is that we're, we're interested in the public interest. So if our idea is that we believe in the story, we want it to be seen as many places as possible. So we partner with as many local papers as, as we can. And we also choose a national partner so that the issues have impact where the power is really where where and the power is in London. That's right. the reality of, sure. of the UK. Center of government. So exactly. So that's where we're that's what we tend to focus on. So we pick a set date and we say locally, like here's everyone can start breaking from this day. Uh, we partnered with Channel 4 News, which would go out um, at 7 p.m. on that evening. Uh, we partner with The Guardian um, and then we obviously make that available and allow for the pickup for anyone who wants to pick up the story. So it'll be, you know, stories came out in the conversation to um, pick up in, you know, all kinds of other national outlets as well. Um, and what's interesting is that, that, you know, we always thought from the beginning that locals would break on the same day as us. And for the most part, they do. But a lot of times, again, this is a kind of assumption that we came going in is they'd want to break on our terms, not on our terms, but on the ones that we thought were right. But most of the time, it's about making it right for their communities. So there could be, you know, a, a local town hall meeting that was happening two days later. So they wait to hold their meeting, their announcement that day. As you, would, as you would necessarily think. Exactly. So I think they, they, we find that they really love being, love that we are providing them exclusive information locally. And they like that they get to be part of something bigger. They get to be part of something not only just informs their community, but they get to see how they rate on a national scale. Um, but it's not always, like, oftentimes it will kind of trickle out after the embargo date a bit. There tends to be a like, big hit, like I said, sure. a big hit on the day that we decide to go out. But we're not, we don't really push too much on that because like I said, every area is different. Does this change the role of of a journalist or people who at least are working in your organization? Because it, it sounds a lot like uh, a producer kind of, you know like mm. a big project managing role in addition yeah. to guiding the data and the story and all the stuff you want to learn uh, but just it's, getting all these people to work together you're working with statisticians and people in local government i mean it's really it's a huge enterprise it, it is actually we've learned that a lot i mean we've only been around just just under two years now and that's one of the biggest things is you know my team is really transformed in terms of responsibility if like a new reporter were to come in i think they we'd have to do a big kind of set of training around it the bureau local is a very different enterprise. I mean, not only just because we're basically kind of a, a tiny experiment. We were given a grant to try for two years to say, can this concept even work? Will people even work together? I mean, this was a big question before yeah. we started. No one even knew if that was going to be possible. And so what that meant was we were constantly experimenting. Like I said, I mean, we didn't expect to take a, a show on tour around the country, but we were open to that because we have thought, you know, this is an experiment. We need to, we need to test these things out. But the role of reporters in in the bureau local is is very wide. 
So what we tend to do is we have to lock down all of our evidence, our data, yeah. um, and the kind of major claims of the story quite early on. That needs to be fact-checked, data-checked, edited weeks way before we even go live because we want to collaborate with people, right? So this reporting recipe I mentioned to you, we open it up to our community and that whole, we can't be providing information that hasn't been checked or verified. So one is that so like- your deadline actually is months, you're, I mean, the same sort of scrutiny that normally get goes into the story that is in the paper the next day is mm. like you're doing that a month or two months or whatever ahead of exactly. time because your story is on some level the recipe that you give to people all over exactly the so that's a really big part of your book that's different one is that we try to be we try to allow people to be part of that process of the story finding as well so that's a bit different where we kind of have live events where we um, allow a bunch of people to kind of come together and dig into a bit of information before we know what the story will be we've done these kind of live reporting days where we've held it around the country of saying we've got this interesting data set we want people to come scrutinize with us we've held events with local experts to come and help guide where the journalism is. We open things up to our network. So one is we have a kind of initial process that works with people that's a bit different. But but I think the point you're mentioning here, which is actually quite fundamentally different than, than traditional journals, newsrooms, is everything gets to go through a huge level of scrutiny. Like I said, one of the reasons I remember before about what makes it really difficult to open up data when you're a national organization is that every single line needs to be correct and to go through that verification process and make sure that you don't provide anything false out there. It was a huge thing. I know a lot of organizations that it's too labor intensive to do that. So we do all that, have to ensure every line of data is correct. Everything we're providing for people is there. Understand, you know, what is our drive? What is our narrative? What are we trying to help people do? Um, that all has to be checked and done way in advance, at least two weeks in advance. We don't like to do anything shorter than that in terms of letting people know. But like you said, ideally a month or more. Then you're there during the process. You're 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 coordinating with reporters. You're coordinating with activists. You're reporting with with people who've got different information. Um, you're taking all that in into the journalistic process. A lot of times we even open up as we're getting quotes from people. We we open that up into kind of a live spreadsheet with our network, and people are all filing in what they're getting, um, which is really powerful because when you run a kind of national story, you do your story, and then you might call up maybe a few politicians, the leading politicians who might speak on it. Locally, obviously, you want your local politicians. So what's happened before with the domestic violence one or other ones we've done on immigration spot checks or on on homelessness even is you've got local reporters all calling up their local MPs. So by the time we break, you've got 15, 20 MPs calling for change. That's a very different right. kind of way than a national story, but it's obviously very powerful. And we include it in our national story. But so there's this whole process of what are people finding? Someone saying, hey, I found this company has been out being outsourced for this service. That can that leads as a tip off to someone else in another part of the country. Hey, I should see if that company is being used here. And so people find it really valuable. And we've we try to get everyone to open up what they're finding. But equally, like I said, we share sources, we share quotes, we're sharing everything we're finding in the process. The journalist has to be it was really hard at the beginning, actually, for a lot of reporters. You have to just be totally open, hope that no one's going to scoop so you. So it runs counterintuitive to the typical practice exactly. of a journalist, right? That's exactly. Lovely, yeah. Everyone on the team, it like the whole process has been a really eye-opening and challenging experience. You know, everyone going, okay, we just have to trust it. You know, we're just putting ourselves out there, this less, lesser known organization. We're just going to say that we're embargoing. Will people adhere to that? You know, and people have. We've never had anyone break, take the data and, you know, we've it's out there. And our top lines are out there a month before we go and nobody breaks it. So it's a real um, it is at the same time a real interesting community of people who trust each other. And it's really built built on that. We try to keep that contained. But, yeah, the whole process just changes. You, you know, you have this reporter essentially, like you said, project managing, collecting information, pulling that into it. And then also by the time we produce, we make public 
that reporting recipe, that data, um, the story, how they can, how anyone who sees the story after it's gone out that wants to take it as well. So there's a whole period of, of doing that. Have you run into, I mean, because part of the reason reporters among many uh, like to keep sort of what they're doing private is to counteract people who are looking to cover up that story, right? Mm. And so they don't want they don't want people to know they're writing about something because it, you know, it's easier to do reporting when nobody knows you're looking for something than yeah. when they do know. Have you found, have you run into that yet where having it sort of known what story you're pursuing is activating people who may not want that story to be covered or written about in a different yeah, way. Yeah, I mean, or... we still operate. You know, we still operate as a newsroom, and so we, so we still kind of, when we know there's quite a sensitive element to that to the story, uh, we are quite careful about how we think about the timing. But overall, I think we're not kind of when we announce it, we're sort of going, you know, here's something. Often, it's something that hasn't been told before. The, the projects we take on need to be things that you know, mainstream media are either not really reporting on there it usually needs to be something new to a lot to most of the time it's not it's not problematic and actually what we find is people we have all these interesting people coming forward who work in that space so you know the example of the homelessness thing all of a sudden we had floods of people coming in oh i'm a gp i work in a you know a small practice up in scotland somewhere um and this is specifically what i specialize in i i look at homeless deaths that come in and i'm happy to kind of share the 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 numbers that I know of, of those who've died in my room and, you know, people who we'd never just never thought to um, right. open it up to. So I think with things like that, we don't we aren't seen by a threat by, you know, ultimately, like they're not going to change overnight some sort of policy on how to fix homeless deaths. But but at the other end of the spectrum, it allows us to just collaborate with people we just never had the thought of. But yeah, I mean, but at the same time, we, we you know, there are certain parts of certain stories that are difficult and we're always kind of weighing up how people might be using that just like any other reporter yeah tell me about the technology that you use to collaborate it's all pretty basic when we first set out it was you know this is going to be some really groundbreaking innovative really different kind of collaborative project we thought okay maybe we're going to build an interface for people to collaborate and all this kind of stuff but um we quickly realized look we had funding for two years again it's experimental two-year funding we could spend that whole time, right. you know, product testing and all that kind of stuff. And that's not what we're here about. I think, and this comes back to what I mentioned before about the kind of available versus the accessible. We we set out thinking, you know, we're going to do all this kind of cool machine learning and we're going to do, and we do quite innovative, you know, database building. But at the end of the day, what people need is just the information. We we did a big listening exercise to see what people actually needed. And, and even in the process of our stories, people didn't want kind of interactives that they could embed on their site or really, you know, Wizzy, exciting kind of data sets. They just needed the basic information about their communities. So we kind of dropped a lot of those that kind of big ideas about building some kind of really interesting machine learning tool for people to process a lot of data. And we just thought, how can we just make this accessible? And sometimes even Excel was really dif difficult for people um, to learn and to access information. So if we thought, okay, what is, if we're working from that level, the most innovative thing we just do is we take, so often we might do a bit of machine learning. We did, um, we did, a big look into the snap election. And so the the question around that was there was no data around new new voters and there was no data on that seat by seat. Um, and we worked with statisticians to model that. So we created a model that estimated those votes and then we verified those manually for the kind of top list of ones that we needed on, on the day. But that, he, that was a huge bit of work from statisticians to do that. And we also built huge databases on demographics and information on each seat. That bit of work we do, we do that heavy lifting on the back end and then we simplify that down. And so everything we do at the moment goes into either something like Google Sheets or Excel, something that people can right. open that's pretty available tool wise. Um, and again, our recipes are kind of 
when people really need it, we sort of say, if you want to look at your area's cuts or voting history, whatever, C column G or what, you know, we really right. spell it out. And so actually at the end of the day, using kind of basic, like I said, whether that's Google Sheets or Excel for that information on our end, we might, like I said, we've done some statistical modeling. We've done some sort of big database building. So we're kind of pulling, whether that's converting PDFs into spreadsheets and then building spreadsheets over time. So we might be building things like SQL databases or we predominantly code ourselves in Python. So when you're thinking about that end of the spectrum, but but mostly, you know, we collaborate on Slack, which is a kind of open chat platform. That's where we allow people into a private Slack channel for the investigation. So once they agree to the embargo, they agree to sharing and, and to the kind of proper agreements around the story, they're invited into this closed Slack channel. That's where they get the data, the reporting recipe, and that's where people chat. It's pretty basic on that on that front. From Which is why people why so many people can use it, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's not like the perfect tool, I think, for what we're doing. But at the at the end of the day, um, it, it all started actually with the snap election. It was uh, she Theresa May had called for this election maybe a month or so after we had launched. We were just barely getting off the ground and just said, you know, obviously we have to take on this story. We didn't have time to build stuff. We just said, okay, let's put it on Slack and see how well it works. Um, and it works quite well from that point of view. Um, we announce our investigations over our email bulletin. We collaborate and release everything on Slack. We built onto our website uh, a platform for all of our open resources, so all of our data, all of our methodology code, reporting recipes are all on that. Um, and that's pretty much it. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty basic. But as I said, like we're we're kind of looking at the kind of basic level that everybody needs. Yeah. And our aim was always about making this available to to local people, and it has to start there. And I think we want to build and build on that. Um, but I think it was the right thing for now to really listen to what people want. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So you talked about a little bit about trust, and I want to talk about that for a second. Mm. You know, here in the UK, people should have known that people were going to vote to leave. Mm. It's probably a similar discussion around people in the United States should have realized that all these people were going to vote for Donald Trump. It's a mm. very kind of similar issue, I think. Mm. Do you think that it's because of this disconnection with local journalism that we didn't know or that these stories weren't being written? I think that's the case. I think in, in our experience of doing this project, we've kind of learned that there is huge gaps. There's huge gaps, first of all, in, in people getting access to just, you know, basic information about what their council is spending their, you know, their their tax money on or, um, you know, cuts that are happening in their area or what are going to affect their services or or just political stories, you know, access to that information. But, but equally, like, there's a lot of spaces that no longer have 
local news outlets for people to have that. And in a lot of those spaces, um, there isn't the huge capacity to these been, there's been a lot of consolidation. So you don't, you know, traditionally, I think this country has this really vibrant history of local reporting. Um, and it being one of those things where everyone knew the local reporter, they were down at the pub, you'd recognize them, they kind of knew that whole community that was, um, and the way that a lot of our reporters describe it is that like, local reporting is about being an advocate for for your community. And I think as those relationships have changed, um, that is where, like you said, we're getting that disconnect. We have to make sure that stories reflect local communities and that it, that needs to, cannot be done from afar. It needs to be done in the space. And I think we have to rebuild that trust because whether we like it or not, news is going through a big existential crisis, um, both from what are we doing from sustainable business models, but also how do we how do we get people to trust and how do we connect with people? I think there's a there's a big focus on facts right now, like what's right and what's wrong. I think that's really important. But I'm really fascinated in how do you get even if the, they find out that fact is true, how do you get them to make it matter to them? How do you even get them to care even if it's true or false? And I think there's a lot of element of saying that news doesn't reflect my life or my community or where I'm from or it's not an advocate for my my space. So how do we rebuild that? So experiments, like I said, that we did with Refuge Woman, which is our show, as I mentioned, that went around the country, I think is a really interesting example of of how we can start to do that. Um, I think our homelessness project has, has, again, also done that in some ways of saying, you know, home, reporting about a homeless death is a very classic kind of local story of saying this is someone from our community who's died without a home. And But to be able to to be able to empower that to happen on lots of local levels, but then to raise that discussion of saying, these are what our local communities around the country are devastated by. Here's what's happening. Here's how many people are are, are being affected by this. Um, I think we're starting to kind of play into that space, but there's so much work that has to be done. And I think your point that it's that this is part of that problem, um, which is part of the solution. I think it's all connected. I think journalists what journalism looks like in the future and what kind of business models work, I actually think are directly connected back to their connection with, with local communities. How, how do you think it, inter- how do you think all of this intersects with, we recently did this big survey of trying to understand people's attitudes toward the information they get online. And one of the things that the survey revealed, which was really interesting was that people, the number one tied with number one and two for the places they get their news is social media. And also the place that they distrust the most is social media. How do you think this just overall concept of a lack of local news ties into the other experience people are having, which is misinformation that's out there that's being pushed on people as a way of sort of making them question the reality that they live in? Yeah, it's a huge question. Um, But I think like I think there's a few things playing into that. I think one is we have to accept that, you know, previously to this, journalists were the gatekeepers to information. That is how you got it before. You'd pick up your paper and that's how you got information about the world but it's also it, you, it was your eco chamber the type of paper you picked up was your your eco chamber to see the view on the world so that hasn't changed in some degree but when the internet which has done this you know incredible thing about you know democratizing information democratizing platform it that's what's has transformed the business model right which is that you know your local outlet is no longer um gatekeeper to getting that news you can get that anywhere. So I think those two things play a really interesting role in this. I think it's also important to remember that the internet is in this sort of teenage years. I think we forget like how much change has happened in such a short period of time about the rise of the internet and technology. And I personally think that 
we're going to kind of go through a phase in which things will settle a little bit, in which people will figure out where areas they might trust. I think there's a huge potential opportunity for news outlets to be able to build that trust if we can just stick out through this really tumultuous time of the internet where, yeah, people are quite excited about that, but you're also seeing huge amounts of polling and trends and things around people saying it's too much information, it's information overload. And I think there's going to be a sign of return to, okay, where's the cream rising to the top, right? So what are the things at the end of the day that I do trust and that thing brand recognition or whatever those things are that people can say, actually, at the end of the day, I've read all this stuff everywhere, but I'm going to trust this organization. But that trust, again, is like related back to um, how deeply invested they feel that those stories are both accurate, but reflective of their communities or their spaces. So I think those two things play an element um, and the kind of misinformation, disinformation, propaganda obviously plays a huge element. And it's really difficult. In local spaces, you you have to now compete on global news. Like that is the difference. In what you're, and also what you're talking about is we they have to kind of both report on global things that are happening and recognize that people care about that. And where do they care again about kind of local and how those two things can they fit well, back it's, it's into almost, It's almost like coincides with or sort of mixes and blends with the business model issue, right? Which is that if there's not this business model for local news, because on some level there's not scale for it, there's mm-hmm. scale for in obviously individual localities. Mm-hmm. Um, but CNN can write about, you know, the Brexit or mm-hmm. the U.S. election, and there's like a huge audience for that. There's obviously mm-hmm. a much smaller audience for any local issue. Mm-hmm. And even the organizations with like scale and news are having a hard time figuring out you know, maybe on television it's working fine because they can yell at each other, but mm-hmm. um, are having a hard time finding a business model that works there, right? So it's almost like these two things are, are kind of coming together, that yeah. uh, that this lack of local news and the lack of a business model for it. And then, you know, you kind of have these new gatekeepers, which is on some level these social media platforms, which don't have the same, I don't want to like paint them out to be bad because I don't necessarily think they're bad, but they definitely didn't come at it from a, we need to make sure that we are informing the public. It's just not what they were built to do. I mean, that's what I mean as well, that there's a crisis. So I think when you think about local news, the business model that's around it was packaged by a lot of other kind of content. So, um, you know, you get the weather listing, you've got your crossword, you've got the TV listings on there, you've got sports results, you know. And the thing is now, the way that the, the internet has worked is you don't need yeah. A local outlet to get that. You can go somewhere else to get the weather. You can go somewhere else to get the TV light, you know, and those different things packaged themselves around the local news and helped fund the news. Mm-hmm. So the news itself might have been the core of it, but actually it was funded through advertisement and all these other cushions or because they were services like yeah. local outlet, local news were services for people. Now that those services are stripped apart and in, in different avenues, what's left is just the news. Yeah. And so, as you said, there's not a scale to say, you know, most of these platforms are on scale. They're on how many views and your relevance in search is is related completely to how much it's seen. But if you are truly telling a story in your community and your community only cares about that specific thing, right. 10,000 people actually is doing its job. But that doesn't work on this sort of global, the, this huge sort of breadth level. Yeah. So now we have to figure out, okay, how do we find how do we find value in public interest and in localized information within that? And I think that that's why I'm saying I think the ticket somehow is in still in the relevance in, of that. So there's a lot of interesting locals are looking at things like membership models um, and attaching things again services around journalism, whether those are events or ways that are kind of give you access into other local services. So I think we have to just reimagine what the future looks like. We have to kind of accept that this is the reality and 
And like we did before, build it, build it as we see the strengths, the markets, the opportunities. And it's not easy, especially because there's not a lot of money coming into this space. But I think that's why the Bureau Local exists is to try to help. We're just, we are not the solution. You know, we are one contribution to the solution. I think we need, like any industry, it needs plurality. It needs innovation. It needs space to do that and funding to do all those things. So we're just hoping to provide some element to that of saying, look, we can't solve all of these other problems, but we can at least help helping pr provide quality, exclusive, investigative content, um, which we find locally is getting huge views um, and it's doing really well for, for, for those papers and those news outlets at the moment. So you're coming up on like what three quarters of the way through your two years, about halfway through. Yeah, so March next year as we finish. Yeah. So I mean, how are you looking at 2019 and 20? Well, are think, you going to try and renew the two-year funding, or are you going to try and do something different at a different scale? Or yeah, so I mean, I say finish as in. Um, so we were originally funded through Google's Digital News Initiative, which is a grant base that they give they give to news organizations to innovate, as you can imagine. Um, so we're really excited that we recently announced um, Google's. Global News Initiative have contributed to the future of Beer Local, um, an organization called Lang Kelly Chase, which is a charity that looks into a holistic approach to vulnerable, sees us as a really important space, um, is donated to us. We've had smaller grants from things like the Robert Bosch Foundation, um, the European Journalism Center, places that have given us smaller grants for kind of smaller experimental projects to, to put into our future. Um, we're currently looking for um, a couple more. Our ideal situation is to have kind of multiple foundations to kind of pledge for help us get through the next three years. We've gotten some funding to help us establish a proper business model going forward. So the aim is to help us continue this. You know, we were given funding to prove the concept. Right. The concept has worked. Now we want three more years to start to get an actual business model off the ground for it. So we're still in the process of, of finding um, organizations, or individuals, people that want to help help this continue. But, so the you know, idea being that in the future, you're not necessarily getting grants from organizations there's some self-sustaining exactly yeah exactly because at the moment like i said it's it's you know we've been really privileged to see this you know people that have this philanthropic um lens to be able to say this is really important um and we've been like i said great that someone allowed us to experiment because it might not have worked right. um, but it did so now that we're at that point of saying okay the idea is working now how do we build the business model off the back of it um so like i said we're just trying to get continual funding for the next three years. And um, and during that time, we're really going to be amping up our kind of business plan. Megan Lucero, thank you. And congratulations on all the great work. It's thank been you. so exciting to watch and we're excited to follow it at the Webbies and Lovies. So but thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Megan for joining us and congratulations again to the Bureau Local for your Levy Be Greater with Data Award. There's a link to the video of Megan being honored at the Levies in the show notes and please check out their incredible work and the homelessness series we discussed in the episode at thebureauinvestigates.com slash local. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be so appreciative if you take a quick couple of seconds and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about the Webby Awards, visit us at webbyawards.com, W-E-B-B-Y-A-W-A-R-D-S.com, or on most social platforms at The Webby Awards. For more about the Levies, our sister award in Europe, go to levyawards.eu, L-O-V-I-E-A-W-A-R-D-S.eu, or The Levy Awards on social. And as always, you can reach me at DMD Likes on Twitter and Instagram. This episode of the Webby Podcast was recorded at Soho Radio Studios in London. Our producer is Terrence Brosnan, editing by Jeff Rose, research and writing by Jordana Jarrett. 
Our editorial director is Nicole Ferraro. Music is by Poddington Bear. Claire Graves is a fun time at Deshoom. And this is The Webby Podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.